You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a money-making business by Alex Ferrari. For a free copy of the audiobook, head over to www.filmbizbook.com. Welcome to the Director Series Podcast, a show dedicated to deconstructing the work of some of cinema's most celebrated and influential film directors. I'm your host, Cameron Bile. Following the 1970s, a decade marked in the film industry by gritty dramas and director-centric indulgence, audience tastes would undergo a rapid shift. The popularity of escapist blockbusters like Jaws and Star Wars coincided with an economic boom, resulting in a widespread preference for spectacle and fantasy. This development posed a major challenge to the film brat generation of American directors, who had remade the industry in their own image with uncompromising personal works. Those more inclined towards blockbuster filmmaking, like Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, fared quite well. Others, like Brian De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola, struggled mightily to adhere to their visions only to experience scattershot success. Of all the directors from this generation, a strong case could be made that Martin Scorsese had the roughest go of it throughout the 1980s. It started promisingly enough with the high-flying release of Raging Bull, but the disappointing reception of The King of Comedy quickly slowed his resurgent momentum. Shortly after that film's release, Scorsese felt he had accumulated enough clout to finally realize a long gestating passion project, The Last Temptation of Christ. He had worked tirelessly to assemble his cast and build the financing, even going so far as to scout far-flung locales in Morocco. It all came crashing down on Thanksgiving Day, when Paramount executives called Scorsese to inform him they were abandoning the project. Plum studio projects like Beverly Hills Cop and Witness were offered up in consolation, but the heartbroken director just couldn't muster up the enthusiasm. Not long after the wilderness years following New York, New York's perceived failure, Scorsese was once again descending into an artistic identity crisis. This time, he wasn't so much trying to regain his creative mojo as he was simply trying to survive. The bulk of the 1980s would subsequently become his journeyman years taking on less personal projects more aligned with changing audience tastes while somehow staying true to his heart. Though painful, this period of erratic growth was exactly what Scorsese needed to unlock the next stage of his creative potential. Scorsese had just turned 40 and was standing at the precipice of one hell of a midlife crisis. His longtime passion project was seemingly dead in the water, and along with it, the North Star guiding his creative ambitions. He was left only with questions— What kind of filmmaker did he want to be? Were his best days already behind him? Would his legacy be defined not by his swift rise, but by a slow and excruciating decline? This intimidating process of self-reflection had an unexpected benefit in that it opened up his mind to opportunities he might have given a second thought to before. One such opportunity was a script written by a recent Columbia University graduate named Joseph Minion, written as his student thesis. Initially titled One Night in Soho, and inspired by a Joe Frank monologue from 1982 titled Lies, the script had been set up with a group in the Double Play Company, with Tim Burton already attached to direct. Scorsese's Mean Street star Amy Robinson had since gone on to become a producer in her own right, and had teamed up with fellow actor and producer Griffin Dunn to establish Double Play. 
she had taken Minion's script and developed it into a starring vehicle for Dunn titled After Hours, about an absurdly wild Manhattan night as navigated by an increasingly fried yuppie. Scorsese initially found Minion's script to be, quote, amateurish, befitting the quality expected of a recent film school graduate. But he also identified with the script's genuine heart and twisted sense of humor. Though the uniquely uncomfortable humor that marked the king of comedy had resulted in a box office bomb, Scorsese perceived After Hours similarly comic affections as an opportunity to reinvent himself via the agility of an independent production. In a way, the occasion of making After Hours was not unlike going back to film school. Only, it wasn't Scorsese's grade that was at stake. It was his career. Would you just give me a break? I really just want to go home. I'm sorry. I can't do that. I could lose my job. Well, who would who would know exactly? I could go to a party, get drunk, talk to someone. Who knows? Would you just give me a goddamn token? No! In keeping with this conceit of reinvention, Scorsese mostly dispenses with his habit of reusing actors from previous projects. Indeed, the only familiar faces in After Hours include Victor Argo and Verna Bloom in a pair of fleeting cameos. As mild-mannered word processor Paul Hackett, Griffin Dunn proves himself a Scorsese protagonist worlds removed from the monumental characters played by Robert De Niro or even Harvey Keitel. An embodiment of the yuppie era that flourished during the Reagan administration, Hackett is content to live out his days at the office and his nights safely ensconced in his well-appointed but personality-devoid apartment. One night, he decides to break up the routine by going out to eat at a local coffee shop, subsequently striking up an innocent conversation with the pretty blonde a few tables over. Rosanna Arquette's Marcy Franklin is a new brand of Scorsese Blonde, bracingly open about her prescription medications and mental health. Paul receives an invite to her apartment by feigning an interest in her roommate's plaster paperweights. After his uncomfortable arrival at a bohemian loft in Soho, it becomes quickly apparent he and Marcy aren't compatible. The trouble truly starts, however, when he tries to sneak out, kick-starting a chain of increasingly absurd scenarios that no ordinary man could possibly encounter in the course of a single night. This mild-mannered yuppie just wants to get home to his cozy uptown apartment. But the film's colorful cast of characters, from Linda Fiorentino's punk sculptor to stoner comedy duo Cheech and Chong as a pair of bumbling cat burglars, are determined to make that task as difficult and dangerous as possible. As is appropriate for a scrappy, low-budget feature, the cinematography of After Hours is quick on its feet, unburdened by cumbersome equipment that otherwise would have been employed to sell a sense of scale. Financed with a $4 million bank loan taken out by Dunn and Robinson, After Hours was shot over eight weeks of grueling night shoots. The film marks the first collaboration between Scorsese and cinematographer Michael Ballhaus, who would go on to lend a great deal of Scorsese's subsequent work. Scorsese's camera work has always been dynamic, but in After Hours, the camera threatens to run off the rails entirely, aided and abetted by the reckless energy of the Steadicam. With the exception of the bookending sequences in Paul's office, the film takes place entirely at night, so Scorsese and Ballhaus adopt a low-key lighting scheme to better convey the lurid nocturnal colors of Soho as a marked contrast to Paul's drab beige apartment. This ascetic dichotomy, that of the young urban professional against the bohemian artist, consumer versus creator, illustrates a major theme of After Hours, which is the convergence and collision of subcultures that marks the vitality and unpredictability of living in a major city like New York. Scorsese's regular editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, returns to lend her talents to After Hours, creating an unrelenting pace that drives our wary protagonist ever forward with nary a chance to catch his breath. 
Like Ballhouse, revered composer Howard Shore would find in After Hours the first of many collaborations with Scorsese, delivering a score that echoes the story's frenetic paranoia with a propulsive blend of electronic synthesizers and the unrelenting percussion of a ticking clock. Shore cedes a considerable amount of the film's musical attention to an eclectic mix of needle drops, spanning a range of genres from classical to jukebox rock, punk, and even mariachi bands. Mozart and Bach share airspace with Cole Porter, The Monkees, Peggy Lee, and many others, an inspired reflection of After Hours' unique focus on the collision of disparate subcultures inherent to the contemporary urban environment. A quintessential entry in the yuppie nightmare cycle, an amusingly specific subgenre combining screwball comedy and noir, After Hours follows in the King of Comedy's twisted comic footsteps while allowing Scorsese to further develop his unique sense of humor. Even as he strays further from the crime dramas that made his name, he doggedly maintains his cinematic identity. The requisite New York setting, the explosive chaos of urban life, and the abrupt, jarring messiness of passionate violence. Evidenced most acutely in the scene where Paul witnesses the murder of a man by his wife in the apartment across the street. Though Paul isn't a thug or a lowlife in the classical Scorsese protagonist fashion, his actions and psyche are nevertheless informed by the most fundamental force in the director's storytelling. If one were to boil Scorsese's body of work down to its most succinct essence, the theme of masculinity emerges as the primary driver of conflict and drama. After Hours explores masculinity within the context of 80s feminism, manifest as a kind of deep-rooted anxiety about social and professional equality between the sexes, and in the extreme, a subconscious paranoia about castration. In Scorsese's gallery of type A protagonists, Paul is decidedly type B. He wants to keep his head down, do his work, not rock the boat. He wants to sail through life while making the least amount of waves possible. The events of After Hours, then, force him to confront this perceived lack of masculine assertiveness. In the end, he reports to the office, ready for another day's work, weary, dirtied, and utterly fried by the night's events. He is nonetheless imbued with a newfound conviction in himself and his potential. His masculinity is secured via the simple transformation from reactive to active protagonist. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. After Hours confirms the brilliance of Scorsese's artistic spirit. And going back to his independent roots, he shows that his razor-sharp storytelling instincts have an atrophied under the attendant luxuries of big-budget studio filmmaking. The film was received quite warmly at its premiere in Cannes, resulting in Scorsese's win for Best Director. Critics mostly loved it, but its $10 million box office take arguably wasn't splashy enough for awards attention from the Academy. It still managed to take home top honors from the indie sector's equivalent gala, the Independent Spirit Awards. Almost 40 years on, After Hours rarely ranks among Scorsese's most significant works, but it nevertheless boasts a strong cult following. Though it may seem an amusing trifle, After Hours carries a dead serious message to Hollywood and its changing audience. Scorsese was still here, and he wasn't going anywhere. Thank you for listening to the Director Series. For a deeper dive into your favorite filmmakers, go to www.directorseries.net. The Director Series is made possible in large part by our generous supporters on Patreon. Please visit us at patreon.com backslash directorseries to see how your contribution enables the continued production of video essays and text articles on your favorite contemporary and classic film directors. Thank you.